Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. Hi, this is the voice of BattleBots, Mark Biro. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Hi, this is Brad Steiger. Hello, my name is Matt Simon. I'm a science writer at Wired Magazine and author of the new book, The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Linda Godfrey, author of American Monsters. Hello, my name is Robert Salas. I'm the author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, my name is Bob Luca. And my name is Betty Andreessen Luca. Hi, this is Jesse Krupus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Positive Autistic. I'm Jeremiah Bomek, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com. Radio Land. As usual, I am your illustrious host, 
of the greatest talk show that ever has been, is, or ever will be, and that is the Graveyard Shift Talk Show. Man, oh man, what a season it's been. And by the way, happy Halloween! Well, I mean, it's the day after Halloween, so I mean, technically I should be saying happy Dia de los Muertos. I mean, well, no, that's more like Igor, right? It's, uh, I wasn't going for that. Well, how about, how about, how about, no, I can't do it either. Any, anyway, whatever it is, whatever you're celebrating, happy that. How's that, boy? How about, how about that much, okay? So, um, anyway, how is everybody doing out there? Um, I know that uh, we have been... <laughs> I tell you what, it's been one heck of a uh, of a week, hasn't it? It's been busy. It's been um, full of stuff. Now tonight is going to be something special. Uh, tonight I'm going to be airing the. Um, if I can find it, because when I put stuff up here, it's not where I need it to be. I'm going to be uh, playing the interview with. Um, Author Mark O'Connell. Now, where is it? I don't see it. I put it in this list, and it's not where I need it to be. Anyway, uh, Mark um, came on with us, uh, I want to say, last week, and I interviewed him regarding his book, The Close Encounters Man. And the book is pretty awesome, guys. The book is basically... Um, about J. Allen Hynek, who is a really, really neat guy, basic, uh, and um, here we go, see if this will work, uh, and J. Allen Hynek is, is, he's done a lot of stuff, thank you for all the love, I appreciate it, he, he's done a lot of things, but of, of the things that he has done, what he's mostly known for is developing the Close Encounters scale, which is what the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was, of course, based on. And um, so that's based, that's what the interview is about. And uh, it's a really long interview. So I'm really hoping that it shows up on my list. So that way I can play it for you. And I'm just kind of waiting for it to show up on my list. But you know what? That's okay. While I'm waiting for that, I would like to hear from you guys in the audience about your close encounters. And no, I'm not talking about close encounters with sickness and your candy from last night. And no, I'm not talking about close encounters from your ex, because that is a lot scarier than aliens. Hold on a second. This thing keeps falling on me. There. Ah! You know, I really need to, there we go. A little better. Not really. There we go. Ah. I really need to get me a stand for this thing, don't I? Um. Anyway. I want to hear from you guys. What what kinds of, you know, experiences have you had in the alien or UFO genre, as it will? So while I'm waiting for this to load, if you can call me at area code 657-383-0162. That's area code 657-383-0162. I want to hear about it. I want to hear. Oh, oh good. It's here. It's, yes. All right. Sweet. All right, forget I said that about calling, because guess what? The interview is, is, is there. It, they, they populated it. Isn't it great that they populated it late during the show? 
Anyway, so uh, this is a really long interview, and I want to make sure I give it the time it deserves. For those of you that are watching us on Facebook, all you have to do is click on that link that I, sh- that I provided right there on the comments, or I guess it would be there, right? Am I pointing in the right way? Am I? Stop making fun of me. Anyway, click on that link and you can listen to the uh, show. All right, so without any further ado, guys, here is the interview between uh, myself and author Mark O'Connell. And um, I will be chatting with you on Facebook. If you want to chat with me during the interview, you can do that. Just go on Facebook.com slash Emmy Shogun and you can chat with me uh, while I'm playing this interview on Blog Talk Radio. Here we go. Hi, everybody. This is Emmy with the Graveyard Shift Talk Show. And as promised, here we are. We're so close to Halloween, and it wouldn't be the Halloween season without discussing UFOs. That's right, because we were just talking about ghosts and shadow people with Brad Steiger last week. And this week, we're going to talk about close encounters. And not just any close encounters. We're going to be discussing very specific close encounters with a gentleman named Mark O'Connell. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Mark. Mark is actually a screenwriter, a teacher, and a blogger. He wrote episodes for Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, two of my favorite TV shows of all time. And he has developed feature film projects with major studios, including Walt Disney and DreamWorks Animation. He is also the founder of the UFO blog High Strangeness. He currently lives in uh, Wisconsin with his wife, Max Monica, and teaches screenwriting at DePaul University in Chicago. Quite an impressive resume. How are you doing, Mark? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here tonight. Oh, we're, we're very uh, honored and, and pleased to have you. Um, first of all, I want to tell you congratulations on one heck of a resume. I I am a huge fan of the Star Trek uh, series, especially Next Generation and um, <clears throat> and uh, Deep Space Nine. So that I would love to hear more about that. Maybe later in the interview we can discuss that. But first, okay. first off, I will, I'm cur- I'm very, very obviously um, really interested and curious about this book. Now, the book is called The Close Encounters Man: How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. And some of our listeners might be wondering, which man is that? Is it you, Mark? No, actually. It's J. Allen Hynek. So can you give our viewers and listeners an idea of who J. Allen Hynek was? Well, Dr. J. Allen Hynek was a very mild-mannered, um, soft-spoken astronomer and college professor who, through no fault of his own, own <laughs> became uh inextricably associated with ufo research and uh ended up really being the world's greatest expert on ufos um and he's he is probably most known if anybody does know who he is they probably know him as the guy who uh, formulated the close encounters categorization system for ufo events uh and of course the that that term close encounters of the third kind uh, was used as the title for Steven Spielberg's uh, 1977 awesome epic UFO movie. So that's basically how Dr. Hynek has left his stamp on the world. There you go. And, you know, of course, everyone, all of us remember that. I mean, it's one of the greatest films ever made of any, really any genre. Um, yeah. Really, uh, in my opinion, I think it shows really, well, an idealized version 
<clears throat> of what would happen if we were visited by other other uh, species of of people or humanoids, and uh, because obviously they're not here to you know what. Which at the time, if you you know if everyone remembers, <clears throat> whenever you would have another uh, race come and visit the Earth. Uh, it, it didn't exactly go very well. You know, normally they would be here either to warn us of impending doom, uh, or to tell us, you know, stop it, or we'll or we'll stop you, like you know, the day the Earth stood still, or they were here just to literally <clears throat> attack us, and uh, you know, Earth versus the flying saucers and all that nonsense. So this was really the first time, or one of the major first times, that we saw aliens as well, I don't want to say benevolent, because I mean they did. I mean, they did kind of kidnap all those people, but, um, you know, at least they brought them back. You know, at least they brought them back, and they brought them back, and, oh, did I spoil the movie for anybody out there? I mean, come on, <laughs> if you guys haven't seen it yet, come on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, so this is really the first time we saw peaceful uh, alien beings, you know? So let me ask you something, Mark. What made you want to write a book about, about Dr. Hynek? I mean, what? why did you want to write a book about this? Well, just like Heineck getting into the UFO trade, I was kind of an innocent bystander in a way. I've always been really interested in anything to do with UFOs, aliens, space travel. I've always been a huge science fiction fan. Uh, and a few years ago, uh, just for fun, just for my own fun, I started writing a UFO blog called High Strangeness. Mm -hmm. uh, HighStrangenessUFO.com. And, and I was doing it sort of a, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I didn't want to take things too seriously. I just wanted to have fun with it. But I kept looking around for uh, online for um, inspiration for things to write about in the blog. Because, you know, you have, to, you have to keep things up in a blog. You have to keep writing stuff right, a right. lot. You have to keep <laughs> so, it fresh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was always looking around for new ideas. And one day I came across a website for an organization called CUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, right. and saw that it was the, the UFO uh, Study Foundation founded by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Now, Dr. Hynek had died in 1986, um, but his, his, uh, his foundation, his center, was still, was still uh, going strong. And I thought, hey, I, I need to stop by this place. And when I found it, it was in Chicago. I, I was living part-time in Chicago at the time, and I discovered this place was really just like five or ten miles from where I lived. And I thought, wow, I've, I've got to take advantage of this. This is so cool. So I talked the, uh, I talked the present um, scientific director of CUFOS, Mark Rodiger, into letting me just come over a few times and just you know, sort of poke around their files, poke around Dr. Hynek's uh, personal and professional files. And just had so much fun looking through all these little historical records of of um, UFO research and the UFO phenomenon. And one of the times I was visiting, Mark said, hey, you know, I've, I've read your blog. I like it. And he said, we've, we've always wanted to find a writer um, who could write the definitive account of Dr. Hynek's career, and I wonder if you'd like to do that. And, man, I, I <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, I'd like to do that. Yeah, what, that would be a dream come true. So that's basically how it all came about. So so Mark said, okay, here you you know you have access to all our files, and oh, there wow. are yeah. And it, sadly though, I just as an aside, I have to say though, so Dr. Hynek's archives 
as far as his UFO work is concerned and his work with KUFOs is concerned, it's basically stored in a couple of different basements and attics in different houses in Chicago, ah. which is kind of sad, but that's, there's just no money for anything else. Right. But so Mark said, hey, you know, you have access to all this information, whatever you need. Uh, good luck. <laughs> so that's how the whole thing started. Wow. I mean, and by the way, uh, for those of you who may not uh, already be doing this uh, while we're while I'm playing this interview, if you go to kufos.org, that's C-U-F-O-S dot O-R-G, and you go and you look at the biography, guess who wrote it? Mark. <laughs> guess who? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah so they... that's, you know, the, he's not just whistling Dixie, guys. He actually really does know Dr. Heineck pretty well, I would say. Excuse well, me. Kufos just rebuilt their website just within the last year or two, and I and and they did a really nice job of it. There's lots of cool information on their website now. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of just like uh, I've been going through it uh, to kind of prepare for our interview, and I'm you know while we're chatting, I'm looking through it now, obviously, and uh, it's really nice. I like how they have it set up here. So okay, that's interesting. So that's how you got into it, and yep. um, you know. So let's let's since this is about Dr. Heineck, let's learn a little bit more about him. Why did he want to get involved into this subject? You know, there's so many. You know, uh, of course, the the main whenever someone's ever asked about this, and in my experience, whenever you ask someone why you want to get involved with UFOs or anything, it's normally the answer comes because I saw one. Or because I was abducted, yeah. or because uh-huh. I have a family member who saw one. So I'm curious, could you give us a little bit more in-depth uh, about Dr. Heineck and what made him want to, to study this? I mean, because I mean, really we have a, him to thank for, for you know, the main uh, well, the modern-day kind of mainstreamity of it, if that's a word, I just made it up, mainstreamity of it. Well, you're asking why Dr. Heineck wanted to study UFOs. The thing is, he never did want to. <laughs> uh-huh, it, just, it was it was forced upon him, literally. Here's what happened: he was teaching he was teaching astronomy at the Ohio State University and Ohio Wesleyan University in Columbus, Ohio, in the late mm-hmm. 1940s. In 1947, um, the first the first famous UFO sighting of, of what we call the modern era of UFOs mm-hmm. uh, took place in um, the Pacific Northwest when a, a private pilot named Kenneth Arnold saw a series of nine um, silvery disc-shaped objects flying around the Cascade Mountains. Uh, and the term flying saucers was born and a national craze was born. Um, all of a sudden in the summer of 1947, the Air Force was getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of UFO reports from around the country. It was just a tidal wave of UFO reports. Everybody everybody reported them to the Air Force, of course. Well, yeah, who else is going to report flying objects to? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's the Air Force's job to keep our skies safe. Navy. So, we're, so let's report it to the Air Force. So the Air, but, but the Air Force didn't know what to do with these case reports. They had no idea what the UFOs were. They were, they were as clueless as everybody else. So their strategy was to just explain it all away as, as quickly as they possibly could. So that's kind of how – that's actually how Heine got involved because they realized, okay, if we're just going to explain these UFOs away as, you know, misidentifications of the planet Venus or, 
you know, or a sundog or, or, you know, any kind of astronomical occurrence, they realized they needed, a, they needed a legitimate astronomer, a professional astronomer, to back them up on this, to give them some intellectual cover. So, so the Air Force was doing their UFO work out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, um, which is in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So they found, you know, they find right up the road uh, at OSU, they find this uh, astronomer, astronomy professor, who just happened to have done a lot of high security contract work for the government in, in, during and after World War II. So he was kind of a known quantity. He had already had top secret clearance um, during the war, so he could be brought on, you know, with a minimum of red tape. Mm-hmm. So they, they go to Ohio State and they look up this astronomy professor and they say, hey, have you heard of these flying saucers? Would you be interested in working with us? to try to explain them away and Heineck accepted the he accepted the job offer because he thought well number one this is going to be really easy way to <laughs> to make a few extra bucks <laughs> and number two he thought he would be contributing to good science because uh, he thought these flying saucer reports were nonsense he thought it was just a fad that it would die away he thought people were just nervous about uh, another Pearl Harbor. You know, this was just a couple of years after the right. Pearl Harbor. Yeah, it was so, very close, very close. Yeah, so Heineck, that's how Heineck explained it to himself. So he thought, sure, I'll I'll join your I'll join your uh, project. So basically, all he did to begin with was he would he would drive to Wright Patterson Air Force Base once or twice a month, sit down at a desk. They'd plop a stack of paper reports in front of him. He'd he'd read the witnesses' accounts. He'd read the Air Force investigators' findings. And then he would look, you know, he would consult his his uh, his star charts and his astronomical records, and he would be able to say, oh, well, this obviously was Venus, this obviously was a comet. So he was able to back the Air Force up and say, yeah, most of these are just simple astronomical uh, bodies that have just been misidentified. Nothing more to it than that. The problem was, there was about 20%, there were about 20% of these reports that still couldn't be explained. And at the time, Heineck just thought, well, no big deal. If we were given enough you know, time and resources to really investigate, we could probably explain those 20% away also. Uh, but he came to regret that <laughs> thinking eventually because it turned out that 20% never changed. And after a few years, he thought, okay, this is, this is kind of weird. After after five years of UFO sightings, not only has the fad not gone away, mm-hmm. but but we still have this consistent 20% residue of really strange reports that that I can't explain. So that's that's how Heineck really got into it, and that's how he started really um, really thinking that there was something more to this phenomenon than just people's imaginations. Right, and not only that, but you mentioned earlier um, two things, actually. First of all, you mentioned about how the UFO craze, if you forgive the term, really started happening around the you know the mid-1947. Like well, that's actually also the time period where Roswell happened, and Roswell happened in 1947. In fact, July 8th, 1947 to be exact. And, you know, that right there, you want to talk about hysteria about another Pearl Harbor. That's the first thing they thought would happen. You know, guys, you know, you got to remember, ladies and gentlemen, that we had just been attacked. And we didn't just get attacked like, oh, you know, bang, bang, that's it. No, we're one of our most revered, most heavily fortified bases, naval bases, 
was completely obliterated. Okay, so and and on, by the by the way, from the sky. Okay, so yeah, you know if you can imagine, you know, and remember this was before the internet. So you hear anything about some object flying around? What are you going to think? You know, and, and yeah. remember, you know, remember the Battle of Los, or you know, the famed Battle of oh, Los yeah. Angeles. You know, of course. Mm-hmm. And by the way, um, I wanted to say this before I forgot. When Mark was mentioning about sun dogs earlier, for those of you that don't know, a sun dog is actually an atmospheric phenomenon uh, that happens when two um, basically halos happen, like patches of light on either side of the of the sun, it makes it look like they're separate part patches of light. I mean, if you ever see one, if you look up sun dogs, you'll you'll see why people would mistake them for UFOs because they, they look yeah. like, you know. But you can, you know, if you actually follow the kind of halo, you can see that they're not. But anyway, um, so yeah, I'm curious about <clears throat> about this. So did Hynek ever know or did anyone ever approach him about uh, Roswell or anything like that? Or was that not a subject? No. Actually, that and that that may really surprise you and a lot of your listeners, but no, Heineck was never ever involved in anything to do with Roswell. I mean, wow. you have to remember that. that does surprise me. You have, you have to remember that you know when that newspaper headline was published in 1947, um, it, it you know it didn't cause that big of of a furor around the country. Nobody really talked about Roswell until the 1970s. You know right. when when Jesse Marcel. Uh, when Jesse Marcel Jr. Um, you know started talking publicly about what happened, so it really was never a factor in Heineck's life. And to be perfectly honest, Heineck never really liked saucer crash stories um, because they were the, because there was never any evidence. He would always hear stories of saucer crashes, and you, and also remember Roswell is far from the only. UFO crash story in UFO lore. I mean, there are many, many crash stories. And Heineck just was never comfortable with him because nobody ever actually eyewitnessed the crash. Um, and nobody was ever willing to, you know, swear under oath to what they saw. So true. he could never substantiate everything. So Heineck never, he just never went there, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it was very, I mean, even to this day, it's been highly, you know, debated. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, well, for, it, it's gotten to the point where, I mean, I even interviewed a good friend of mine, Nick Redfern, who I mentioned pretty much almost every show <laughs> on, but that's because he's had so many books about the subject. On yeah. When he wrote a book about one particular theory was that the Roswell aliens were actually deformed I know it's going to sound strange, but deformed Soviet experimental people. Right. And what's now, so you've heard of this theory? Oh yeah, I've heard of it. And what's amazing is that it wasn't just a throwaway, like oh, that's just another kooky theory. He actually got a lot of witnesses that said they saw them, and that said they saw the bodies, and they worked. And he, I mean, it was quite frankly rather. Astonishing the amount of I don't want to say evidence, but the mm-hmm. amount of, well the amount of evidence of the theory. Let's put it that way. Um, okay. Not that it actually happened, but anyway. Um, but that kind of ties into what we're talking about with Dr. Heineck. So that kind of brings me to my next question. So what did he decide when he started looking into this? Obviously, he came into it as a skeptic, but right. I also know that he slowly started finding out. Wait a minute, there is some truth to some of these things. 
So what did he discover that made him, you know, come to that conclusion of of seeing them as some of them as truth, or at least a very potential for, for truth? Right. Well, as, as I mentioned before, uh, the the idea that um, even after even five years into uh, the phenomenon, you know, starting in '47, going into 1952, mm-hmm. when Heineck realized that there was consistently this 20% of cases that couldn't be explained, that had a huge, huge impact on his thinking. Okay, so that even just really that by started, itself, yeah, just that by itself uh, yeah. was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because basically, what it what it symbolized was, you know, Heineck had made this assumption that it was a fad and it would die out. Well, when it turned out that he was wrong about that assumption, you know, this guy, this guy is uh, is a scientist and he follows the scientific method. And when he when he realizes, oh, one assumption is wrong, maybe my other assumptions are wrong as well. So maybe I should approach this, you know, in a, in a different way. Maybe I should appro- approach this with a more open mind. So that's exactly what he did. But now there were some other factors too. Around the same time, 1952. Um, he actually had this. Uh, he he presented a paper at a national conference of scientists. It was the American Optical Society, mm-hmm. 1952. Heineck gets up in front of this room full of his professional peers and delivers a paper on UFOs. He sort of comes out of from undercover and basically publicly declares that he has been studying UFOs for the Air Force. Oh, boy. And um, and he goes out on limb and he says, you know what, we, we, sh- we shouldn't be making fun of these witnesses. We should be taking them seriously and we should be studying this. Right. In fact, so there's a famous – that's true. And there's an, actually there's a famous uh, quote from that <coughs> – excuse me, from the issue of the Journal of the Optical Society of America where he says, and I quote, ridicule is not part of the scientific method and people should not be taught that it is. The steady flow of reports often made in concert by reliable observers – raises questions of scientific obligation and responsibility. Is there, redacted, any residue that is worthy of scientific attention? Or if there isn't, does not an obligation exist to say to the public, not in words of open ridicule, but seriously, to keep faith with the trust the public places in science and scientists? I mean, that's really kind of... when you uh, When you take into consideration that this gentleman did not really... Uh, was not in the uh, group of believers, and then he came out with something like this. That's pretty astounding. You yeah, know. it's a very strong statement. I'm glad you brought up that quote. Cause that's that's my favorite Heineck quote, hands yeah. down. Because, like I said, he really went out on a limb, because this was not a friendly audience he was delivering this message to. Wow. Another thing that happened right around this same time was that for the first time, Instead of just looking at UFO reports while sitting at a desk at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, in 1953, Heineck was sent out to do his first actual field investigation in South Dakota and North Dakota. So for the first time, Heineck's actually sitting down with UFO witnesses and interviewing them face-to-face and, you know, getting a glimpse into, you know, the way their minds work and, you know, looking into their eyes and, you know, reading their facial expressions and their body language and, you know, listening to listening to like stress levels in their voices as they're telling their stories. And that also had a huge impact on Heineck. Just, you know, sort of being uh, expo- exposed to the human element of a UFO sighting for the first time. 
and I think that you know that that uh, went a long way towards Heineck deciding that yeah we shouldn't be ridiculing these people. We have to listen to what they have to say, and we have to take it seriously. Right, and you know now it's funny that right you know we're now we're kind of doing this timeline thing, which is interest, which is good because it gives us an idea of you know where he is. Uh, and it's funny how things are happening around him while he's discovering these things. Because now he was a part of Project Sign, correct? Right. Now at the ta- at the same time, um, there was another project going on. Very, uh, and, and, I mean, I'm sorry to say it, that was actually more well known called Project Blue Book, which were. Uh, <clears throat> now I'm curious about would you know? I know that Heineck never joined Project Blue Book, but um, I know that things were happening in and around him because of that was now i obviously i already know the answer to this question but i I'm, i would like the viewers and listeners to know what were dr Heineck's views on project blue book well he actually was a part of project blue book that's the thing oh, he was he oh, was I initially he was, i'm sorry no, here's, i'm, I'm correct about that he was, he was he was brought into project sign in 1948 right. uh, and that lasted about 6 months and then he went back to teaching, and he forgot all about UFOs for a couple of years. Well, in the meantime, the Air Force killed Project Sign because, honestly, the, 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 the people assigned to Project Sign were starting to talk about the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and nobody wanted to hear it. So they quickly killed it. They killed Project Sign. They reorganized it as Project Grudge. Grudge, right, yeah. Which you can okay. go by the name Grudge. They had a grudge against UFOs. <laughs> Heineck had nothing to do with Project Grudge. He was back teaching that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the winds shifted again, and a, there was a massive UFO sighting at a military installation in New Jersey that caused um, that caused the Air Force to sort of re reinvigorate um, the the UFO study, and at that point they changed the name from Project Grudge oh, okay. to Project Blue Book. So see, I was and it was at that then. point, okay. that point, like 1952-53, that's when they brought Heineck back in to work for them again. So, so Heineck was like, you know, he was in and out of this project in the early years, but then once he rejoined, uh, he he was with Project Blue Book right till the bitter end, right until 1969. Wow. And he, uh, you know, and of course there are, there have always been questions and rumors that there must have been another top secret study aside from Project Blue Book, right? Where the real, where the really good UFO case reports went. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and Heineck, Heineck did have some experiences that suggested that that was true. You know, he would have he would have military people come up to him just in casual conversation, say, hey, you know, did you see my UFO report? He's like, I saw something weird last year, and I submitted a report to Project Blue Book. Did you have a chance to read my report? And Heineck would say, well, well, no, I never saw that report. And this happened several times, and every time it happened, Heine- it made Heineck wonder, well, does that mean that some of these reports are getting diverted to another office, to another UFO study group? Yeah. Yeah, there was certainly was evidence that. to indicate that that would, could actually have been happening the whole well, time. Yeah, and it might have been. If, I mean, there's. Yeah. I mean, hey, that's just how the government works sometimes. I mean, you know, look at what's happening right now with the release of the JFK assassination paperwork and the files. Right. 
You know, I mean, who knows what we're going to find out. I mean, I still am of the belief that I really don't think we're going to find out anything substantial. I mean, I don't I would like to hope that we do, but I doubt I doubt it. I don't think we'll ever really find out if there were really, if if anything was different, I don't think we'll ever find out, you know. Um yeah. there've been so many presidents, uh not to not to change the subject too much, but I'll just say this much and that's it. There have been so many presidents – and really, actually, this goes with this subject too, though, that there have been so many presidents that say, you know, when I become president, I'm going to find out such and such and such. I mean we have them on tape. We have Bill Clinton and uh, Barack Obama and, and uh, even Donald Trump said when they became president they were going to find out the truth behind Area 51 and, and the aliens and JFK. And, and it turns out they either didn't say anything or they, they came back on. They had they had President Bush Jr. come back on recently and asked him, look, did you find out anything about aliens? And he said, no, I can't tell you. So it's like, well, you know, that's how it goes. But yeah. um, now let's get back to um, – we're on Project Blue Book now. Now, I think one of the reasons why I was so mistaken about this was because Dr. Hynek actually didn't agree with everything they published. Oh, yeah, and that's very true. You know, I'm I'm curious about this now. Was that the reason, or was that maybe the the motivation that made him want to start Kufos, the Center for UFO Studies, or what 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 kind of brought him to that point in his life? It's, no, that's that's a correct connection. Definitely, Kufos Kufos came about after Project Blue Book died, and it was I would say it's a direct reaction to that. Yeah, Heineck always had a really difficult relationship with the Air Force. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, the, the Project Blue Book project chiefs would come and go every couple of years, and sometimes they were pretty good guys who really were curious about the topic and really were interested in doing a good job of investigating UFO reports, but sometimes they were, sometimes they were the exact opposite. Sometimes they were guys who just couldn't care less about UFOs, kind of resented being placed in this dead-end job and just really <laughs> took it out on Heineck and everybody. Oh, my gosh. So so there was that. That didn't make things easy. But, you know, in general, the Air Force's attitude was always, it can't be, therefore it isn't. So, mm. so anytime Heineck would say, well, now, wait a minute, there's something interesting about this case. I think we should take a closer look at it. Pretty much every time Heineck did that, the Air Force would just, you know, shut him down and say, no, 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 you don't, you're, no, don't go there. So it was a difficult relationship throughout, and a lot of people who, a lot of people who were seriously interested in studying UFOs really resented the fact that Heineck would sort of just go along with the Air Force's debunking and, and you know, not cause a bigger stir and, you know, th that's a fair criticism because Heineck did kind of bite his tongue and just kind of, just kind of, you know, grit it out a lot with the Air Force and do things that he didn't really agree with. But he had a reason for it, and here's the reason. He always figured if he spoke up, if he defied his Air Force commanders, or if he quit, you know, if he went all the way and just quit Project Blue Book out of protest, he'd lose access to all that UFO data that the Air Force right. had collected over the years. Yeah. So to him, having access to those files was way more important than, um, you know, having to deal with some really unpleasant Air Force bosses and having to deal with UFO colleagues who, you know, would get impatient with him and angry with him. 
he just figured, I'll put up with that. I can put up with that as long as it means I can continue to have access to the Air Force's data because that's what, you know, because that's what's of value here. So, so it was a it was a weird, complicated relationship. And when Blue Book finally folded in 1969, the Air Force was very relieved to be out of the UFO business, and Heineck was very were. relieved not to have to carry water for the Air Force ever again. Now, I bet. Now, but but what I find interesting about all this is that as much as he has been quoted as being against the whole idea, or at least as far as I can tell from the research I've been doing, I'm sure if I'm wrong, please correct me again. Um, <laughs> um, but he wasn't exactly a proponent of the extraterrestrial idea. Oh, no, the, not at all. About the, okay, not at yeah, all. And it's, and it, and it's, um, and that, and and that begs first, the question, then what, what was it? You know, what kind of, I mean, please continue what you were saying, but, if you can kind of connect it to this, then what what did he conclude from all these oh, sightings? Well, that's an interesting story. When he first started out with the Air Force back in Project Sign and in the early days of Project Blue Book, he absolutely he was a complete skeptic. He thought the whole thing was kind of silly. Right. Like right. I said, he thought it was a fad. He thought it was just people's imaginations, uh, and he really didn't put any. You know, he didn't really think that it was anything that important. Well, as his mind changed over time. Um, he started. He started to think. Um, he started to think that UFOs were worthy of a scientific study, but that doesn't mean he thought they were alien spacecraft from another planet. Okay, he just wanted to find out. He didn't know what they were, but he wanted to try to find out what they were. And until there was ample evidence, until there was ample proof that they were one thing or another. He was not going to make a stand um, as far as saying, well, I think they're interplanetary vehicles or, I, you know. He, he just wasn't going to go there because there weren't enough facts to support that. This guy, you know, he was a scientist. You know, in every, every molecule of his body, he was a scientist. He right. only went where the facts would take him. And he never found any facts that could prove that these were extraterrestrial vehicles he could never find any facts that could prove that they were nuts and bolts, you know, mechanical constructions. So he always kept an open mind, and he would never subscribe to any one particular belief or explanation over another. And you can see where that would drive people nuts. Because, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, because people wanted him to say, this is what it is. People wanted him to give a clear-cut definition of what a UFO was, and he just wouldn't do it because he didn't believe he could. He didn't think it would be honest to say anything like that. He was very intellectually honest above all else. So um, in later years, though, so now we get into the, the 70s and the 80s, and he's formed KUFOS, and he's no longer working for the Air Force, so he can speak his mind. Well, in those years... He becomes much more open-minded and expansive in his thinking, and he's not—he's thinking, yes, it's possible that these come from another planet, or it's also possible that they come from another dimension. That was a big pet theory of his in later years. He called it metaterrestrial. He thought—he thought, well, maybe there are other parallel dimensions alongside our own, and that's where they're coming from. Or he also thought—and this is another pet theory that I—I I find so interesting. He also thought, well, maybe there's 
maybe there's something about this phenomenon that is psychic, not just physical, but psychic as well. You know, maybe maybe these UFO visions are some sort of psychic projection directly into our minds that makes us think that we're seeing this thing. He was he was really willing to explore a lot of fascinating alternate theories of where UFOs came from and what they were. Right. And and I I see that as a sign of his scientific integrity. It's not that he couldn't decide. It was that it was that he he didn't have proof of anything one way or another. So he had to keep an open mind. Right. I mean and and that does speak to his professionalism. I mean, he yeah. didn't just come out and say, "Guess what? They're aliens," because he didn't see any evidence of that. He just yeah. thought, "Well, there could be anything, really. I mean, it could be a military ship. It could be maybe somebody building one of these things in their backyard, for all we know. Or it could be, <laughs> yeah. you know, you never know. You really yeah. never know. I mean, there was video. Uh, I know you guys are going to laugh at me, but go ahead." There was a video that people found many, 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 many years later after the Cold War ended of the Soviets constructing flying saucer-shaped vehicles. Mm. Um, even the Nazis tried that. I mean, you know, look at the bell, the bell incident, yeah. the Nazi bell. You know, uh -huh. we don't know what that was. We have no idea. We have we have theories. We have, you know, uh, whatever, but w nobody really knows what that was. And, I mean, you know, it's. I personally think the way he handled it was was the appropriate way. I mean, that's how you're supposed to handle a scientific, you know, investigation. You're yeah. not supposed to just jump the gun. Now, let's talk about a little bit. This kind of brings us to close encounters of the third kind. And we've been here sitting here talking about how Dr. Heineck wasn't a proponent of the extraterrestrial uh <clears throat> and solution to this, and yet he made a cameo in the movie right when the aliens came out. Yep, he sure did. Oh, and guys, he sure I agree, did. he really did. If you go, if you're watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind, at the very end of the film, and this I knew from, from a long time ago, there's a part in the movie where the aliens come out, okay? And there's a guy that comes into frame, and he's bearded, he looks like a professor, and he's got the pipe and everything. That's J. Allen Hynek. Yep, it's a so, six-second there you scene. go. That's I'm his sorry? movie career. Six a six second scene. Oh, a six That's second his yeah. movie career. Yeah, personally, I think he should have had a lot more airtime, but <laughs> oh, you know that's fine. At, at least at least he's in it. At least we know, you know. So and and, and you know what? Quite frankly, Mark, if, if anyone would have deserved to see that, if it really happened for real, he absolutely would have deserved that. Oh with yeah. All the time he put in. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he so would have just done that for sure. Oh, yeah. So how exactly did he arrive at this level, at this close encounters level of measurement, as you will? What what made him want to, you know, well, I guess not made, made him want to, because I mean, he was already studying and researching it, but, you know, where did he, how did he arrive to this kind of measurement level? Well, like many things in his life, it was a process that took place over many years, and it really started in the late 1960s. And Heineck, again, he was a scientist, so he was always looking for patterns and consistencies. So late 60s come around, he's starting to think, well, maybe we can make sense of the UFO phenomenon if we can detect patterns, if we can detect consistencies in some of these reports. So he started focusing attention on that, and ultimately he came up with, uh, he came up with his first system, which actually he 
first wrote about, believe it or not, in an article that appeared in Playboy magazine in 1967. And he talked, he talked about Cat. Oh, sorry? No, I said, of course. Of course it was oh. a Playboy. <laughs> yeah. So he talked about a system where you would categorize UFO sightings by the strangeness factor, you know, how well it conformed to known physical laws and the credibility factor of the witnesses based on, you know, their education, their social standing, et cetera, et cetera. And he mm-hmm. thought if you could rank cases by the strangeness and the and the and and the um and the, the witnesses' credibility, you could maybe start to make sense of these sightings. Well, time went on and he developed this even further to in the in the early nineteen seventies. Now he had a system where he had <clears throat> He had first the first three categories of UFO sightings were daylight discs, uh, meandering nocturnal lights, and visual radar sightings. Those are all pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but then he also had a special category for UFO encounters that took place in in very short range, where the witness was really really close to the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. That's where close encounters come in. Right. So a, clo- a close encounter of the first kind involves simple visual contact with an object that's less than 500 yards away from the witness. Because he figured at that distance, the witness can make out uh, size and shape and physical details of the object. Right. Uh, close encounter of the second kind involves physical evidence, like burned, a burned gra- spot in the grass or landing pad imprints, or the witness has burned retinas, or the witness's car shuts down as the UFO flies by. You know, all of those things have been reported many, many times. Close encounter of the third kind, as we all know, I think, involves entities, some sort of creatures associated with the UFO that the witness either either sees or possibly interacts with. Now, later on, people added close encounters of the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh kind. I don't even know how far it goes now. But Heineck only did one, two, and three. Those were his categories. And he um, he introduced that system in a book he wrote, had published in 1972, called The UFO Experience, which if anybody who's interested in this topic, read that book, The UFO Experience. You will learn, yeah. you will learn so much reading that book. This guy was just he, – he knew so much about the phenomenon, and he could explain it so well. It's just a fantastic read. It really so is. I this, actually read that, yeah. Yeah, so this comes out, the Close Encounters scheme comes out in that book in 1972. A couple of years later, Heineck finds out that, uh, lo and behold, Steven Spielberg is using that <laughs> that uh, <laughs> phrase as the title for his new UFO movie. <laughs> wow. And, I mean, was he ever contacted? Like, I mean, was that at well, least that's, say, hey. Well, that's, that's a funny story. It's one of my favorite stories in the book. Is So when I started researching uh, at KUFOS, I pulled open the file drawer labeled letter S, and two folders jumped out at me. One said Sagan, and the other said Spielberg. And, oh. I, and I grabbed the Spielberg folder first, and I looked in it, and the first thing I see is there's this really awkward letter, that, a copy of this really awkward letter that Dr. Hynek has written to Steven Spielberg saying, hey... I just found out that you're naming your movie after one of my terms from my book. I really wish you had talked to me first. We need to talk. And, yeah, I read that letter, and my jaw just dropped. I thought, holy cow, does that mean Steven Spielberg stole the title? I know. That's what I was going to just say. Wow. Yeah. 
It was crazy. So, but then I found that. Well, then the next letter in the file was a return letter from Spielberg back to Heineck, very apologetic, also very awkward, in which Steven Spielberg says, "Hey, I'm sorry. We didn't. No harm intended. We're not even going to use that title anymore. We're going to call the movie Watch the Skies." And uh. by the way, by the way, Spielberg said, "I'm having everybody on my creative team read your book." As as part of their education on this topic, well, so I thought, okay, now this story gets even more interesting. Well, in the end, they they worked things out. They were both grown ups. Spielberg and Heineck both got what they wanted because uh, Spielberg bought the rights to the name Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and obviously that's what he ended up using for the title of the movie. Thank you. Uh, and he hired Heineck as a technical consultant. And while Heineck was on set as as consultant. That's when they shot that uh, that cameo scene with Heineck approaching the mothership. So it worked out well in the end for everybody. Uh, Steven Spielberg got to have sort of this official stamp of approval on his movie from the world's leading UFO expert, which was good for him. Yeah. And Heineck, you know, Heineck now is, you know, for all eternity, Heineck is now associated with one of the most popular and beloved movies of all time. So not not a bad uh, not a bad way to uh, for the story to end for either one of them. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, wow, what a what a story indeed. I did not know about that. I mean, I knew that he based it obviously off of his scale, but I didn't know that it was uh un- <laughs> he didn't contact him. Well, oh, that's, isn't always, you know. Yeah, that's that's what you learn when you start rooting through ancient file cabinets that nobody's <laughs> nobody's stuck their nose into for years and years. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I mean, wow. We could obviously keep on going on this. I mean, there's so much information about him and about about this subject. Um, I just cannot begin to, to thank you, really, for taking the time. Actually, what oh, I welcome. did want to ask you about, mm-hmm. uh, what we discussed very briefly before, was your involvement with Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> I'm very curious. What did you write with The Next Generation? What did you write? Well, um, I've, I did five episodes. My episode for Next Generation is actually the one where I didn't get my name in the credits because they basically they bought a story concept from me, um, and there's no category in the Writers Guild <laughs> rules for right. a story concept. So, but nope. but the episode is called Time Timescape, and it involves uh, Picard and let's see, I think it's Picard and Data and Troy and Geordi have been on an away mission. And when they return to the Enterprise in their shuttlecraft, they find that the Enterprise is suspended in time at the exact moment that a Romulan ship is just about to destroy it. Right. Yeah. It's the one yeah. where um where everything's suspended and yeah, suspended in yeah. time. Yeah. I remember. Oh my God, you you thought of that one? That was, I love yeah. that episode. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I did uh, I did four episodes of Deep four episodes of Deep Space Nine. The first one was called Second Sight. And then I did one called Meridian, and then another one called For the Cause. And then finally, the last one that I'm actually most proud of is Who Mourns for Mourn. Oh, my God! Which You wrote <laughs> Who Mourns for Mourn? Yep, yep. Now, I have to point out, I, I had a different married name at the time. I was credited as Mark Garrett O'Connell, but that is me. And, uh, and Who Mourns for Mourn, I'm happy to say... A couple of years ago, was ranked number seventy-two of the top one hundred Star Trek episodes of all time. So I'm very, very proud of that. That was done by oh uh, I- yeah, I- 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 Yep, written by Mark Garrett O'Connell. I'll be damned. Yep. 
Wow. That so, was, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's my... <laughs> so did you ever meet the guy that was in Morn's costume? Did you ever meet Morn? No, 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 I never did. Oh, I, I, I never actually met any of the cast, now that I think about it. I saw them up close, but I never actually met them. When you're oh. when you're an outside freelance writer, <laughs> you know they they sort of rush you in, you do your work, and then they rush you back out again. Right, right, right. Wow, what a wow! I just <laughs> I can't believe it. And I mean, you know, Second Sight was a really cool episode. That's where he falls in love, or right. Cisco, Captain Cisco, falls in love with a woman who looks identical to his uh, the wife that you know that I think that he I think that doesn't she. Or no, no, it's not that she looks like the dead wife. It's that he just falls in love with her, and uh, turns out to be not what he thinks. But anyway, right. wow, that's amazing. I, I cannot tell you how uh, how honored that I am to meet somebody that wrote that. I mean, I'm I want you to know I'm a fan of your work. Uh, Thank you, very, I really appreciate very, that. That's cool. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Um, wow. So there you go, guys. You never know who you're going to get on the on the graveyard shift. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a surprise. Yep, yep. Oh my goodness. Well, Mark, I really uh so basically anybody that that wants this book can pretty much pick it up at most major bookstores and online yeah. on Amazon. Um yeah. and uh I usually I I've been asking this recently of my guests, do you think there's a possibility we might be able to get a signed copy of uh to give away kind of for our fans? Is that possible? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. We can do that. Awesome. So there you go, guys. Uh, he's uh, just be on the lookout. I'm going to be uh, giving that away once I get it in the mail, and you All can right, have cool. a copy of the Close Encounters Man. So uh, that's basically our interview for the for the night. Thank you so much, Mark, and uh, we want to thank you for taking the time to be here on the Graveyard Shift. Thanks for having me. It was fun talking. Have a great uh, night. There you go, guys. That was the interview with author Mark O'Connell of The Close Encounters Man, a book which you can get at most major bookstores and online at Amazon.com, among other places. We, of course, would like to again thank Mark for coming on the show. Uh, quite a long time for the interview, so really thank him for his patience. And I want to thank all of our awesome listeners and viewers on our Facebook feed. You guys are so awesome. I love you guys. Um, thank you for all your great comments, all your love, your likes, everything, everything. Um, and um, I really appreciate that. So uh, once again, every, anyone that might have gotten into the show towards the end, um, you can always watch it on iTunes. Just look for it under the podcast section, the Graveyard Shift Talk Show. Make sure it's this one. I have a yellow and black logo and this handsome face. Or I'm doing this. And uh, you can look at it there. And, of course, the Facebook feed is uh, available. You won't be able to hear the interview on the Facebook feed. But that's about it, guys, for the show. Thanks for watching. And I'm going to go ahead and let you get out with the Full Metal Alchemist last uh, opening theme song again. Here it is. See you next time. <laughs> Yeah.